0: It's Friday, September 7th, and this is The Daily Dive. Everyone around the country is asking the same question. Who wrote it? After The New York Times published an anonymous op-ed called I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration, the country was left to wonder who this senior official is. The news has left the president angry and isolated. Mike Snyder, reporter for USA Today, Joins us for more on this and the flurry of denials from cabinet officials saying they are not the ones who penned the essay. Next, even after California legalized recreational marijuana sales, the illegal weed industry is booming and doing better than ever. While sales of legal marijuana will surpass illegal sales, it is estimated that the illegal market will still be worth over $2.5 billion in 2018. Haley Fox contributor to Vice covering the cannabis industry, joins us to talk about why no taxes and no overhead keeps the black market strong. Finally, it's been done for a long time to help with weight loss, but scientists are now looking at fasting as a way to help you live longer. A recent study by the National Institute on Aging found that mice who fasted lived up to 40% longer than those who had access to food around the clock. Dalvin Brown over at USA Today joins us for the latest study. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: The failing New York Times has an anonymous editorial. Can you believe it? Anonymous, meaning gutless, a gutless editorial. I come from a place where if if you're not in a position to execute the commander's intent, you have a singular option, and just to leave. I know someone will say, gosh, you didn't answer the question. It's not mine. I think it's a disgrace. Uh, The anonymous editorial... Published in the New
0: York Times represents a new low in American journalism. Joining us now is Mike Snyder, reporter for USA Today. Who is the one that wrote the op-ed for the New York Times? That's the (laughs) question that everybody's asking right now. This person will eventually be rooted out. But uh, the New York Times published an anonymous op-ed. There's a lot of questions about why, what motivations they would have to do that. They quoted this person as a senior official in the Trump administration And, you know, they said that they're basically undermining the president out of fear of what he's gonna to do to the country what do we know that was in this op-ed
1: so this senior official um, which the New York Times said they vetted and that they've actually they know who the person is they say the editorial page folks say that basically says something that's been talked about since the president took office that about officials who might be adults in the room and this person claims to be one of the adults in the room and said they wanted to get this point of view out to let people know that there is someone there thinking about the country as opposed to the president himself but to let people know that the president as they said continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our republic and kind of goes in and gives some background about what's been going on I think what surprised people the most was it the official revealed early on in the presidency that some of the cabinet had whispered, I think is the verb that they used, about invoking the 25th Amendment, right. which if you read the 25th Amendment, the cabinet and certain officials can collectively come to a, an agreement that the president is unfit for office and take that to the Congress and start a big process, which, as they said, it would precipitate a constitutional crisis to quote the editorial. And they decided not to do that, but instead to try to guide the president or work against the president on some of his day-to-day activities to help achieve his overall goals of what he was trying to do in his presidency
0: yeah the president and others in the White House are furious over this whole thing they've described the New York Times and this person as gutless why would they be anonymous and he's demanded that the New York Times name who the source is and caused this flurry of uh, statements and things like that out of the administration Mike Pence Secretary of State Mike Pompeo director of National Intelligence Dan Coats Kristen Nielsen James Mattis Steve Mnuchin Rick Perry, all sorts of people have already come out with statements saying we are not the person that wrote this op ed.
1: Well, and by the time we get done talking, someone else probably will have said they haven't done that also. It will be a lot of ways to look at this. I've heard people looking at phraseology, the way the person writes. I guess there's people that have AI programs that are looking at this. Whoever wrote this probably put in some phrases that other officials might use just to throw in red herring. So you can't initially find out who they are. Yeah, one of those
0: in particular was the use of the word lodestar, which (laughs) Mike Pence tends to use a lot in some of his speeches. Mm-hmm. So Certainly. that's why people were saying, it's got to be Mike Pence, you know, but <laughs> but you're right. They probably are throwing out some uh, little dodgeballs there. They
1: ran in print edition Thursday, September 6th in the New York Times. But some editors thought maybe people don't understand why there might be a anonymous source used. And, and historically, anonymous sources have been used for to get very important stories out. Obviously, what comes to mind most is the Watergate investigation and the Washington Post reporter's use of a source called Deep Throat. And the reason the New York Times, which said they thought a lot about, you, about whether they should run this or not, the reason they decided to do this is because this may be the only way at this point to get this point of view out there, because this person may want to keep this job and continue right. doing what they consider is a important mission for the country. If they came out and said this publicly, obviously they'd be fired, they'd be vilified, they oh, possibly gonna- could come under personal attack.
0: Right. Once the, this, the identity of this person comes out, they're going to be run out of D.C. completely. I mean, Mm -hmm. there might be heroes in certain circles, certain political circles at that point, but you can't trust a person like that anymore. Mm
1: -hmm. In fact, one of the sources I talked to, to about this story said it would be a massive blow to the credibility of The New York Times if it turns out this person was a pawn on this political chessboard.
0: New York Times said that they've done this a few times, like four times in the past three years or so. But what about journalistic ethics as a source, as you were saying, as a source in a story, maybe to protect the person. But as an op-ed, obviously, this person wants to keep doing what they're doing. But as an op-ed, what do the journalistic ethics ethicists say about this?
1: The idea of using anonymous sources is, you know, it's a spectrum. And depending on the outlet, they have a different way of allowing that to be used. The New York Times is, at least in most circles, a well-respected place outlet media source and you would expect them to be this to be a trustworthy situation what the concern ethically is if this becomes a regular happenstance and who can tell us what is really happening factually with their name to it and we can check it. And if the we already have a situation in the U.S. where facts are being debated as either not truth or truth or facts and alternate facts and things like that. We will be watching and ethicists will be watching if this causes that spectrum to move one way or another and contribute to the divisiveness that we currently have in the country.
0: Mike Snyder, reporter for USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having
1: me. Always interesting.
2: drives, old school style, drives, picks up pounds of it, brings it back, sells it to dispensaries. For each 30 pounds of cannabis flower he sells, he nets about $30,000. And that's just for flower. He's also selling concentrate. He's bringing in about $300,000 a month. Joining
0: us now is Haley Fox, contributor to Vice. She's been covering the cannabis legalization that's been going on. It's an interesting thing. California legalized marijuana recreationally at the beginning of the year. And we've uh, been hearing stories about new dispensaries getting their papers in order, how much all that stuff has cost. But the illegal weed industry has been booming and doing better than ever. There's a research firm that had said that legal sales will probably surpass illegal sales in California this year. But that still, the illegal market could be worth a little bit more than $2.6 billion throughout the rest of this year. What do we know about the illegal weed market, Haley?
2: That we kind of expected so when California was in the process of legalizing cannabis there were a lot of concerns over the cost of licensing and how a lot of the taxes were on both the businesses selling and the customers who would be buying. And it has turned out that all of these things have contributed to a, by all counts, flourishing illegal industry. So basically, because of the cost of getting up and running over, under current regulations, which includes not only getting the right licenses and permits, but paying for security upgrades to your store and you know all the attorneys and consultants you need to make sure you cross all your t's and dot all your i's have made it very cost prohibitive for businesses and then for customers they're used to buying product at a certain price and now because of all these state and local taxes when they go into a dispensary the same weed they would have bought last year is exponentially more expensive so it's causing supply and demand to move more towards the illegal market
0: right with all that overhead I mean it's totally cheaper to operate in the black market like everybody had been doing for so long you also talked about a a guy named William P in your article who had been in the game for years, since 2004, even when the newly created legal market came around, it still wasn't enough for him. Some of these roadblocks that you had just mentioned, but he was making just as much money going that way. How much money was he making delivering marijuana?
2: I believe the one you're referring to is Diego. Oh, you're right, born, yes who's the one who was delivering marijuana and he also has been on and off in the industry for a while but over the last two years has ramped up production and yeah he was saying he drives old school style drives, picks up pounds of it brings it back, sells it to dispensaries and he was saying that for each 30 pounds of flour cannabis flour he sells, he nets about $30,000 and that's just for flour. He's also selling concentrate. We did some easy math and showed he's bringing in about $300,000 a month um, just on cannabis flower. And obviously he has a team that this money is distributed between, but it's a lot of money.
0: (laughs) Right, but everybody gets paid under the table. There's no taxes to worry about. So it's such a lucrative business still at that point.
2: Exactly. And you know, that's what he was saying is there's no real motivation at this point. You know, he hasn't had any run-ins with law enforcement. He hasn't had any problems with violence or robberies. So at this point, he sees really no reason to join the legal market when he's doing so well um, in the illegal one.
0: People are also saying that some of the licensed dispensaries are also double dipping. So they're operating the front of house like a normal dispensary with your patients and all that stuff. But then in the back of the house, they're also selling a lot of weed to some of these guys, uh, like you said, like Diego, that's delivering a lot of stuff.
2: Yes, I have heard from multiple people kind of a two-facing business going on because As we mentioned, you know, the price of legalization is so high, a lot of people who want to be operating legally and part of the regulated market find that they're just not making enough money in it. So to subsidize their income in a way, Um, they're also selling or participating in other illegal aspects of the market to kind of make up the difference or help add their income so they can keep also working, you know, under this permitted structure.
0: And as you mentioned, even with the case of Diego, the transportation of it is so much easier. People are even using the post office, the U.S. post office, to send a lot of these other things like vape pens and edibles that are, you know, you're not carrying the flower anymore. So that's has the most negative connotations because some of these vape pens, they look like regular vape pens that you would have nicotine with.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a big thing, you know, Diego said, um, and I had heard from other people as well, that kind of the ex- expansion of the type of products you can get, like you said, vape pens, edibles, all these other forms of weed have made it even easier to really ship or transport large quantities with less fear of detection than, you know, when you're just sending bags of weed.
0: California knows this, and the city of Los Angeles knows this very well. They're allocating money to uh, trying to find some of these illegal businesses as well?
2: As of right now, LA has identified money. It's it seemed to become kind of a priority in Los Angeles, at least. There's about $2.3, 2400000 million set aside in the budget for this year and next in Los Angeles, just focusing on the LAPD's efforts to investigate the illegal market and this is in addition to other efforts the city attorney's office and other pieces of this puzzle are working on and then California as a whole has been very aware of this and looking at ways to address it. There have been a few false starts to possible funding or projects that would help crack down on this but so far there hasn't been anything huge passed that really puts a lot of money towards quashing
0: the illegal market. Thank you for joining us. Haley Fox, contributor to Vice. She's been covering cannabis legalization in the industry for a while now.
2: Thank you.
3: It looks like the mice studies, where the mice were able to live longer, healthier lives, um, up to 40% longer, healthier lives, it looks like that may also translate into humans. So I'm excited to find out what comes next out of these studies.
0: Joining us now is Dalvin Brown, Breaking News Fellow at USA Today. So we're going to be talking about something kind of fun. Uh, you know, I love all these science stories and and these studies that they do constantly. It's something that people have been doing for many, many years to lose weight, but now we're being told that it also might help you live longer. And we're talking about fasting. What do we know about this new study that was conducted?
3: One of the things that really struck me about this study was that, like you said, people have been fasting for hundreds of years. And I think scientists have been looking at it recently, specifically trying to figure out how it can help make humans live longer, how it can make us healthier. It sounds to me like that's exactly what they found, that the, it looks like the mice studies, where the mice were able to live longer, healthier lives, um, up to 40% longer, actually, um, healthier lives. It looks like that may also translate into humans. So I'm excited to find out what comes next out of these studies.
0: Yeah, that's such a crazy number. 40% longer they live Forty percent longer because of this fasting. So this is a study done by the National Institute on Aging. It's part of the National Institutes of Health. And as you said, this was done on mice. So not hasn't been done on humans yet, but we often start there. Scientists are really pumped up about this because of the implications, because of what it could mean for when they do get to study this on humans.
3: I spoke to a few different scientists who talked about how there were My studies that proved that I guess certain things like diabetes and heart disease issues that were able to be solved with mice also translated into humans in previous trials. So, you know, it's difficult to tell if because mice lived 40 percent longer that humans will also live longer. (laughs) That study takes a lot longer to produce. They are excited and I'm kind of excited about the findings as well.
0: So the study said that mice who ate one meal per day, they had the longest period of fasting seem to have the longer lifespan and better outcomes for some of these age related diseases such as liver disease and other metabolic disorders. It makes sense. You know, you let the body digest and process all the foods and stuff that you're eating rather than letting it sit in your stomach and and just constantly piling on more. So that makes sense. But how did they do this study and what were the actual results?
3: They took almost 300 mice and separated them into different groups. Initially, they were looking at how the diet, specifically what types of food the mice ate, how that would affect the mice. But I guess we're surprised to find out one of the variables, which was the fasting time, actually led to the mice living longer. I love um, I
0: love that part about the diets because one of the batch was fed a low-fat and naturally sourced diet. It's something you'd find <laughs> out in like you know, LA and California or something. And the other one was given a a higher in protein and fiber diet.
3: Yeah, and, and the surprising findings was no matter what the diet was, the mice lived longer when they fasted. They were split into three subgroups. Like you said, one of the groups was eating once a day, they only had access to the food once a day. And then the other two groups pretty much had access to food throughout the day. The ones who were forced to eat relatively quickly, who only had access to food for a short period of time and fasted upwards of 18, maybe longer hours a day, they lived longer, which is really surprising surprising. What's the
0: next step for studies like this? We always hear about studies being done in the National Institutes of Health or in this particular one, the National Institute on Aging. What's the next step after that? Do they just jump right into humans? Do they test other animals? They get encouraged by these results. So they want to obviously keep going. Where do they go from there?
3: Well, this particular study was only focused on male mice, so I think the next step is to see if it also translates into females' mice as well. But they're also looking at other lab animals, perhaps larger mammals, and seeing if they have the same findings in those larger mammals before moving it eventually, hopefully, into human trials. That's what all the experts have said is the goal, and it it looks like they're headed in that direction.
0: Well, it's some interesting findings. I am not a doctor. We're just reporting on what the National Institute of Aging said. So don't listen to me for medical advice. But it seems like if you want to live the longest, only eat once a day. As far as what these mice are doing, this is just going to lead into the next big hip diet of uh, you yeah. Know, make sure first. you fast and you do this and that, and boom, you have first. the the new the new diet that everybody's doing
3: for sure. And that's one of the pros of the study. You know, if you do fast for longer periods of time, I guess you tend to lose weight. I guess that's a byproduct of it. But what's really exciting is that, you know, that may be implications for longer lives. And I think that that's something that people care a lot about. Right.
0: Dalvin Brown, Breaking News Fellow at USA Today. Thank you very much for
3: joining us. No, thanks for having me. I I really enjoy talking about the subject.